All right, we sang, I am so glad that Jesus loves me, even me. I trust tonight that you are glad that Jesus loves you. Uh, praise God for that. Uh, praise him for his love. Uh, let's take our Bibles tonight, please. Turn to Psalm chapter 15, Sunday night in the Psalms. Tonight, Psalm chapter 15. Uh, this was to have been last Sunday night's message. We had a little trouble. Uh, trouble has been resolved. We praise God for that. Uh, and here we are tonight. Uh, I could just conclude, Brother Ray, that God wanted this message to be preached uh, this night, this Sunday night, and that's fine. Uh, so we are making our way through the Psalms, and uh, let's just do a, a quick review here. Back in Psalm 13, uh, we saw David's despair turn to delight. I've reminded us a few times now about those Ds. We saw despair uh, turn to delight, and what was the D in the middle there? It was prayerful devotion, right? David turned his attention to the Lord, took his eyes off of uh, the source of despair, uh, put his eyes upon the Lord with prayerful devotion, and God blessed him by turning his despair to delight. And then in Psalm uh, 14, a similar, similar idea, similar structure, uh, we saw David's lament. Uh, he lamented the foolishness of men. Uh, we saw David longing for the Lord, uh, and in the middle, the Lord looking for men of understanding, and that, that was uh, Psalm 14. Now, tonight, we come again uh, to Psalm 15. Look, look back uh, at the end of Psalm 14 uh, with me one more time, if you would. Uh, there, well, perhaps we won't look at specific verses, but at, at the end there of, of Psalm 14, we see David longing for... Uh, the Lord to return. His desire uh, was that the Lord uh, would return. Uh, and, and that's a good desire. Uh, Brother Ray, we, we're taught clearly to, uh, to desire the Lord's return, to anticipate that, to look forward to that, to pray for that, uh, to live each day like today might be that day. And of course, uh, tonight could be that night. What a, what a wonderful thing that would be. Uh, so here uh, in Psalm 15, uh, we find uh, David, it would seem, he longs to abide uh, in the Lord's tabernacle. At the end of Psalm 14, he's longing for the Lord's return. Uh, here in the beginning of Psalm 15, he's asking a question. Look there in verse 1. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill. So uh, it would seem that his longing for the Lord's return uh, there in Psalm 14 is longing, uh, longing to, for uh, a desire. He's longing for expressing a desire uh, to be close to the Lord, to uh, be with the Lord uh, in his tabernacle. Now, there's some theories about uh, the occasion of this Psalm, uh, the historical setting. Uh, some have theorized that the occasion for this psalm may have been uh, the, Ark, uh, the Ark of the Covenant being returned to Israel uh, by, from the Philistines. That, that's possible. Uh, of course, the Ark uh, would have been, resided uh, within the Holy of Holies in, in the earthly tabernacle. And, and so perhaps if, if he's uh, uh, seeing or... or, or uh, reflecting upon the return of the ark uh, and thinking about the place where God designed the ark to reside, uh, one thought right away would be, hey, that, that's the place where the Lord's special presence 
uh, resided among men uh, there in the wilderness. And later in the uh, tabernacle, uh, the, the Holy of Holies, the place of the ark, is, is the place where God's special presence came uh, and resided among men. So uh, it would seem to be the case that here, the language that David is using, uh, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Yes, it's a question. Uh, and yes, David is asking that question of, of the Lord. Uh, but it seems to express a, a longing on David's part to be with the Lord uh, in the place of his special presence. That's a good longing. That, that, that's a good desire. Uh, it's a good desire. Now let's come back and look at the, uh, the, the nature of the, the verse, for verse 1. It is a question. Uh, it is a question. And so uh, look with me here uh, again at verse 1. Lord, who shall... Uh, abide in thy tabernacle, who shall dwell uh, in thy holy hill? I'm going to stop there and pray, and then I'm going to jump in and consider this question, the nature of the question, uh, what can we make of the question, and then see uh, the balance of the short psalm, the next just uh, four verses, it's five verses in total, seems to be God, it's God's answer to David's question. So let's pray. We'll read the psalm, and then we'll jump right in here. Uh, Father, thank you tonight for the psalms. Thank you for these wonderful, inspired psalms, uh, for the doctrine they teach, for the joy uh, they encourage. Uh, Lord, for all that you reveal in and through them. Father, we thank you tonight for David's question. Uh, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell uh, in thy holy hill? Lord, thank you for your answer. Lord, I understand tonight when you take care uh, to understand the answer correctly, but I, I know tonight we can uh, because of you. Lord, I thank you tonight for the Holy Spirit who aids our understanding, who comforts us, who brings your word to memory, who seals our salvation. Lord, thank you so very much for the, the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. Lord, I pray tonight that you help us now, that you encourage us and, and grow our understanding of your words uh, and our salvation. Lord, I pray that you'll help me tonight uh, to bring you honor and glory as I speak. Lord, help my words and thoughts to be yours. Uh, Lord, I pray tonight you not let me say anything or do anything that be inconsistent with your words or your will. Father, we desire tonight to bring you honor and glory now. I pray for each one who's listening. Lord, help them. Lord, help them to receive your words and to apply them in the most practical way for you and your glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Uh, I've read the first verse a few times already. Let's see it again, please. So we see in the title, it's a Psalm of David. Uh, David is the penman. They're God's words, um, God's inspired words given by the Spirit through David. Uh, David asks this, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell uh, in thy holy hill? Now, I've talked a little bit already about what might have been the occasion, the historical setting uh, but the, the question is the question, regardless of whether or not we're right about the setting. Uh, we know what the question says. We know what it says literally. Who will enter, Lord, into uh, your presence? Uh, the idea would seem to be for eternity. Uh, David is asking this question by, return, by referring to the place of the Lord's presence. Lord, who will enter into your eternal presence? Would seem uh, to be the nature of the question. David asked the question by referring to the place uh, of God's special presence, at least among men, at least in David's day. Uh, this this make good sense. 
Uh, he, so he asks the question by referring to the place that is the place of God's preference. We have uh, presence, I'll get it right, presence. Uh, we have two words here, or two phrases, the tabernacle. Uh, this, this may literally refer to the earthly tabernacle, as we've said. Uh, but as I've said uh, already, I, I believe David is most likely considering uh, not the earthly tabernacle. We understand that only the high priest was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies and only one time per year, Brother Ray, uh, into the place of God's special presence. There were great consequences for uh, not abiding by uh, those rules. So I believe it's the case that, that David is... Uh, perhaps uh, he, he's being inspired by uh, seeing the ark coming back. Perhaps he's thinking about the earthly tabernacle and the place of God's presence. But I believe that uh, what David is really ultimately asking is, uh, Lord, who is it that will enter into your presence for eternity? Uh, who will enter into the heavenly tabernacle? Uh, who is able? <laughs> who is able uh, to approach you uh, in the heavenly tabernacle for eternity? Who is it that is able uh, to do that? Now, I want to remind you tonight that the New Testament teaches us very plainly, especially in Hebrews 8 and 9. Make a note of this, please. Especially in Hebrews 8 and 9, uh, the Bible shows us that the earthly tabernacle of the Old Testament, uh, the place of sacrifice, the place of God's presence, the place where God was approached through a blood sacrifice, uh, the place where the ultimate sacrifice of Christ was pictured, uh, that is a, that's a picture of Christ. Yes, it is, but uh, it's also a picture of the true heavenly tabernacle. Evidently, according to Scripture, uh, there is a tabernacle in heaven uh, where the Lord resides. Uh, Hebrews 8, verse 11. Uh, turn there if you're, if you're able to do that quickly. Hebrews 8, and verse 11. Make a note of the passage, please. Uh, there, the writer of Hebrews, is probably Paul, uh, says this, But Christ be, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once. Uh, entered in where? Well, to a greater and more perfect tabernacle, uh, according to Hebrews 8, 11, uh, he entered in once into the holy place, uh, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Well, praise God. Uh, praise God. The Bible teaches that uh, Christ, through his blood, was able to enter into the, uh, the heavenly tabernacle, the, the more perfect tabernacle, uh, by his own blood, with his own blood, and by his own blood. Uh, similarly, in Hebrews 9 and verse 24, Hebrews 9 uh, and verse 24, the Bible says there, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, no, he didn't, uh, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself uh, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Uh, Christ did not enter into a heavenly tabernacle, I'm sorry, uh, into an earthly tabernacle or earthly temple uh, to make himself a sacrifice for us. No, actually, uh, he was sacrificed without the gate, <laughs> outside of that place. We've talked about the, the significance of, of that truth. Um, and um, why did he do that? Well, for, for our salvation, and uh, having, having accomplished that, he entered into the 
uh, heavenly, more perfect tabernacle, the one not made with hands, um, which are uh, the, true, the true heavenly tabernacle, uh, which is in heaven, Hebrews 9.24, uh, to appear in the presence of God for us. Uh, did he literally go in there with his blood? I don't know, but boy, these verses certainly uh, imply that. The verses certainly imply that. So uh, we understand that David is, uh, would seem to be uh, reflecting upon the earthly tabernacle and, and Brother Ray, with the aid of the Spirit of God who's inspiring him, I believe he's, he's considering the heavenly tabernacle uh, and, and longing to enter into the presence of God there uh, for eternity. I believe that is, that is the, the ultimate understanding that, that David has here. He's, he's longing to be with the Lord throughout eternity uh, in the true heavenly tabernacle. He longs to be in a close relationship in the presence uh, of the Lord for eternity uh, in the place of, of his uh, special presence. That's a good thing. Uh, that, that's a good thing. He's, he's desiring that kind of closeness uh, to the Lord. Now, Brother Ray, I understand that um, I'll not enter into the presence of God without having first been saved, <laughs> saved by, by Christ and uh, having his blood applied to my sin. I'm, I'm thankful tonight that I, I have made that choice, uh, and I'm thankful tonight that anyone who makes that choice uh, shares the same hope. They will enter into the presence of the Lord uh, in heaven uh, and, and remain uh, with him in his presence uh, there till we return at the end of the tribulation period uh, at that great battle of Armageddon to remain with the Lord on a perfected earth for a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ uh, to be followed by a new heaven and new earth where, where we'll continue in the presence of the Lord all throughout eternity. David's longing for that. That's a good thing. He has, he has understanding from the Lord. He has a great hope from the Lord because of that. Um, the world is increasingly more corrupt. The culture is increasingly more corrupt. The philosophies of the world are increasingly more offensive. But we're just passing through. We are pilgrims passing through this world uh, to a better one, uh, the place of the true heavenly tabernacle. Uh, David longs for that, and we should too. Lord, help us to fall out of love with this world and to be more in love with you uh, and to... Uh, desire that much more to come into your eternal, uh, eternal presence. Um, and so look at the question, please, one more time. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Uh, who shall dwell uh, in thy holy hill? Now, we'll see, uh, we'll see here that the question... Uh, is answered by the Lord uh, in the next several verses, uh, verses two through five. That's the that's the totality of the psalm. Uh, the question is answered with references to righteous behavior. Um, the answers that we see here uh, do not focus on the necessity of repentance and faith, but the answers um, are uh, all answers that reference righteous behavior. Honestly, not unlike what we've seen in the Beatitudes in recent weeks in uh, Matthew 5. 
Blessed are they that do this or do that. They shall inherit the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and so we take care to understand uh, those verses in the right context. Who's Lord speaking to there? He's speaking to save people. He's not saying that uh, you can get your, earn your way into uh, the kingdom of heaven by doing the things that Jesus preached uh, in that section of the Sermon on the Mount, so that great discourse. No, he's saying there will be blessings in eternity for believers who conduct themselves according to uh, the word of God and God's desires. And uh, we have to take care tonight to understand God's answer to David in this psalm the same way. Uh, David is uh, evidently, um, well, he's talking to God and God as a believer, and God is answering him as a believer. So uh, God's answer to David is not teaching David how to be saved. God's answer to David uh, is uh, God's answer to a saved man. Uh, and, and I believe just as John wrote of evidences of salvation throughout uh, his first epistle, 1 John, uh, by the way, by the time you get up to 1 John 5, 13, he says, these things have been written that you may know, what? Well, that you're saved. Uh, and so I believe the Lord's answer here is uh, written very much in the same vein. Uh, the Lord will answer David uh, this way. It's essentially, he says, listen, it's, it's righteous men, uh, those who live righteously and those who have a practical righteousness in their lives are, are the ones who will uh, enter into the tabernacle, who will dwell uh, in the holy hill. What's he saying? He's saying uh, it's those that have a, um, uh, I'll get it, it, it's those that have evidence of salvation in their lives that point to fruits meet for repentance, a genuine evidence of salvation in their life. Brother Ray, let me say this tonight. There's all kinds of people that have professed, that have a, an outward public profession that they've truly repented of sin and truly put their faith in Christ. Is every one of them telling the truth? No, they're not. Some are fakers. Perhaps many are fakers. Uh, why would they do that? Well, different reasons. They don't want people to look down upon them. They, they like the idea of, of being religious and being seen as religious. By the way, that's a, that's a religious pridefulness. Uh, how ironic that we would uh, be religious and pretend uh, to be saved out of a heart filled with pride. Uh, there's plenty of people who have a, a testimony of having come to Christ, but who have not truly repented and who have not truly put their faith in Christ for salvation, uh, or perhaps not in the, the Christ of Scripture. Uh, perhaps their Christ is the Christ of uh, Mormonism, a different Christ, uh, the brother of Satan, uh, or some other unbiblical uh, version, false version, corrupted version uh, of Christ. Listen, there's lots of people who say they're saved. There's many people who think they're saved, but they're not. And, and you can know for sure because there's little to no evidence of salvation in their lives. You want to know who's saved? Go read back through 1 John again. Go read back through 1 John again. If those evidences 
that John writes of under inspiration uh, are not increasingly present in someone's life, you are on strong biblical grounds for questioning their salvation. And it's not my goal tonight to cause you to question your salvation. You know whether or not you've truly repented of sin and truly placed your faith in Christ. If you've done that, you're saved according to my Bible. Uh, and you do not need to worry about that tonight. Uh, if you've not done that, you ought to be greatly concerned and you ought to repent of sin and place your faith in Christ for real because if you don't, you're really on your way to a very real hell. I don't like that, but that's the Bible truth. That's the, what people need to know. They need to know that Christ is the only way of escape from, from that reality. Uh, and they need to understand that uh, short of evidence of salvation in a person's life, um, we, we would rightly, correctly, biblically uh, question, question, is that person really saved? Because I don't see any evidence. I don't see any change. Uh, that, that person is, is just not really changed. Uh, they don't seem to have any real hope. They don't seem to have any interest in ministering apart from some glory that they get uh, from that or some attention. Uh, they, they don't seem to be true. Maybe they're busy serving the Lord, but they don't seem to be interested in, uh, in doing that for the Lord. They're, they seem to be interested in doing that more for themselves. They, uh, they, there's just, you know, there's, there's problems. There's no real love. And all of those things. If, if, if you cannot see biblical evidences of salvation in someone's life, that's a problem. That's a problem. And, and we do well. Uh, we do well to confront that uh, lovingly and, and wisely. Uh, and biblically. So uh, all of that to say this tonight, the Lord's answer to David's question is, listen, those who will abide in my tabernacle uh, throughout eternity, those who will abide in thy holy hill, those who will abide uh, in my presence throughout eternity are those who have a practical righteousness in their life that is uh, an evidence of genuine salvation. That is an evidence that they've truly repented and placed their faith in Christ. Not just a testimony of that, but truly done business with God. One person with one God truly coming together with a, a genuine repentance of heart and a genuine placing of faith upon Christ and Christ alone for what he did upon the cross to be the only basis uh, of forgiveness of sin. When we've done that, we immediately gain a position of righteousness before God. He sees us as righteous as Christ is righteous because the righteousness of Christ is paid onto our account and his blood covers our sin. And that's a glorious truth. Uh, and that moment also is the moment in which the Lord indwells us and begins a process. Uh, salvation is not a process, but the Lord begins a process of sanctifying us, uh, causing an increasingly greater practical righteousness to be evident in our lives. That does not happen all at once. That is a process whereby we grow into the position that we occupy the moment that we're saved. I don't know if any of you have ever been promoted into a position where you really weren't qualified. You didn't really uh, have the skills or knowledge to occupy that position. Uh, but sure enough, you were in that position. And over time, uh, someone just took your hand and said, listen, I'm going to help you along the way here. Well, our salvation is a little bit like that. We're, 
we're, we're promoted into a place of salvation the moment we place our, repent, place our faith in Christ, uh, and we're helped along by the Holy Spirit over time uh, to live up to the reality of the position that we were placed into before God the Father. And praise God for that tonight. Uh, praise God for that tonight. Well, let's, uh, let's come in here and now see the, the balance of the, the, the psalm here. Uh, here's the question again. Uh, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Verse 1. Uh, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? The answer is someone who has the evidence of uh, salvation that is a practical righteousness in his life. Look at verse 2. I'm not just making this up. Verse 2, here's God's answer. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness. <laughs> he that walketh uprightly uh, and worketh righteousness. This can't be the way of salvation. The Bible doesn't permit that. Uh, Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham didn't earn that. Paul reiterates that in Romans 4. Uh, Paul reiterates that works are not the way of salvation in Ephesians 2. Uh, and so uh, we understand very clearly, uh, very clearly, uh, that uh, this is not the way of salvation. This is the product of salvation. It's an evidence uh, of salvation. Walking uprightly uh, and working righteousness, living righteously, serving righteously, obeying the Lord, living righteously. That's the product of salvation. It's not the way of salvation. You can say, well, pastor, uh, repentance of sin, that, that's part of the way. Yes, it is. Uh, yes, it is the intention to repent of sin. Uh, is part of the uh, salvation equation. That couple with faith gets you saved uh, for sure. Uh, but when you've been genuinely saved that way, there can be a genuine practical uh, salvation, uh, repentance, let me try it again, a genuine righteousness in our lives because uh, it's not just our intent. Now it's the action of God working in our repentance uh, to bring about uh, to, the, to bring about the realization of our intention and hope, God is the one that produces that uh, in the heart and and life uh, of a saved person. This will be present increasingly so in our lives. Well, Pastor, what what if someone says they're saved yesterday but their life is still a mess? <laughs> That's okay. It's a process. Over time, there ought to be a greater practical righteousness evident. I understand a baby doesn't get born and get up and walk the next day. Brother Ray, that'd be pretty scary if that happened. Probably not a good thing. Uh, believers really don't do that either. It might be scary too. Uh, they're saved. They're born again. They're newborn babes in the Lord. It takes some time uh, for them to grow up. But there ought to be the evidence of progressive, continual growth in that person's life, just like a baby grows uh, progressively, continually, um, uh, as they develop physically. Well, the answer again is, He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness, this evidence, this is the theme uh, of the answer. And the Lord goes on, He says, listen, um, that truth, that reality uh, will be manifest in a believer's life in a number of different ways. And by the way, I believe the Lord is just giving examples of, of this idea here. Someone who's saved will have a growing, increasing, practical uh, righteousness in their life. That's the product of the presence of the Spirit of God. Uh, it'll, it'll begin inwardly. We see that in the next part of verse 2. Uh, inwardly, his heart will be filled with truth. Verse 
uh, to the second part of verse 2 says, and speaketh the truth in his heart. Uh, he speaketh the truth in his heart. Uh, there, there is an inward manifestation of the action of the Spirit of God in the life of someone who's genuinely saved. They speak the truth in their hearts. Uh, they're no longer filling their hearts with lies. They have discernment from the Spirit of God to know what is truth. They've been illuminated by the Lord. They have the light of Christ. Uh, they, they have understanding now and growing ability to discern uh, light from darkness, truth from error, what is right biblically and what is wrong biblically. Uh, they, they speak truth uh, in their hearts. By the way, we saw this morning uh, in Acts chapter 5 just how serious it is uh, to be truthful as a believer uh, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church. Uh, Peter told them they lied to the Spirit of God, who is God. Uh, and having persisted in their lies uh, in the church and, and to God, the Lord struck them dead uh, in a moment. Dead, gone, uh, buried, uh, lying uh, to the church, uh, to the Lord's serious business. Uh, it needs to be taken very seriously. Uh, it does harm to the church, and, and God often uh, times will not tolerate that. We saw, we saw that uh, throughout the New Testament this morning. Uh, so there's change inwardly. Uh, this may not be immediately seen outwardly, but Brother Ray, what I know is that genuine inward change uh, produces necessarily a genuine outward change. Uh, a changed heart, a heart that's been changed inwardly, uh, will have an, a visible effect outwardly. Uh, if you had a serious uh, defect in one of your heart valves, uh, that might affect your ability to exert yourself. Uh, it, would, it would manifest itself. Uh, it, it, there would be an inward problem that would be manifest, be visible outwardly. But if that heart valve is repaired surgically, uh, that would be an inward change that would pretty quickly be manifest as an outward change, more of a physical, physical visible uh, presence in someone's life. The same is true with spiritual change that happens in our hearts. The Holy Spirit that makes a, a change in our hearts. He, he corrects our hearts, and, and pretty soon there is a, an outward change that other people can see. Not a change that accrues to our pride, but, but one that should uh, accrue to the glory of God. Look at the change in that person's life. Look what God was able to do uh, in that person's life, and praise God for that. Uh, so he speaketh the truth in his heart. The next thing we see here in verse 3 is that outwardly, uh, there's a change. His behavior toward his neighbor uh, is more righteous. Whereas he may have been a, a cranky, unloving neighbor, uh, an, an unjust neighbor, one who gossiped against neighbors and so forth. Now there's a change. Uh, it, it's, it's a practical, visible righteousness uh, in this person's life. They're not doing it to get saved. It's the Holy Spirit working in them because they are saved. And see this in verse 3. He that backbiteth not with his tongue... This God answering, Lord, who's, who's going to be? Uh, who's going to be in your tabernacle? Who shall abide in thy holy hill? He that backbiteth not with his tongue, verse 3, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach uh, against his neighbor. Uh, God doesn't want us running around being uh, bad to people, having a bad testimony with our neighbors. That's not a good path to be on if you desire to be faithful to lead your, your neighbors to Christ. Uh, and so there, there's change in our relationships that began 
with a change in our relationship to God uh, who affected a change in our hearts, uh, who uh, having affected us inwardly, that inward change is manifest in our outward behavior uh, toward others uh, within the church and out, outside of the church. Uh, they no longer backbite with their tongues. They no longer do with evil to their neighbors. By the way, Psalm 34 and verse 13 says, keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Safe people should not do that. They don't do that. Lord, help us to not do that. Psalm 101 and verse 5 says, Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart uh, will not I suffer. Now, that's prideful sin, and we suffer consequences for prideful sin. All sin is prideful, isn't it? All willful sin of volition is, is, is pride. Uh, it's, it's active rebellion against a holy God. You think about sin that way? Uh, Satan actively rebelled. He pridefully rebelled uh, against God. He was cast out of heaven. His desire since that point evidently is to lead others into active volitional rebellion against God. Uh, that's sin. Sin is, sin is active volitional rebellion uh, against God. Uh, when you willfully sin, you join up with Satan as a will, willful rebel uh, against God. For a believer, that makes no sense. We, we were on Satan's team, but we've been uh, plucked off of that team and placed into the family of God. We're not on his team anymore, so it, it doesn't make any sense to take up his cause and continue to rebel against a righteous God. It just doesn't make any sense at all. We've been changed inwardly, uh, and now there's, now there's an outward change because of that. And if there's not, if there's no evidence of outward change, at some point, um, we do well to ask ourselves, hey, have I really been saved? Have I really been saved or have I been fooling myself? You can fool yourself, but you'll not fool God. Uh, if, if you don't show up at the judgment seat of Christ, that's a problem. You're not saved. If, if you show up at the great white throne judgment instead of the judgment seat, that's a problem. Uh, God knows. God knows if you've been fooling yourself because you cannot fool him. You've either repented of sin and placed your faith in Christ, and there's an evidence of that in your life, or there isn't. You haven't truly done that, and there's no true evidence of that because you've not been changed. You've not been changed. Understand people grow at different rates. And certainly my growth in my younger years as a Christian was not what it should have been. Brother Ray, that was my fault, not God's fault. That was my fault, not God's fault. But there was a change, and there was conviction. And um, when I got myself back into church, <laughs> you know what? At Long Hill Baptist Church, God began to work on my heart. So listen, we, we could clean some things up. We could do some business. I said, okay, God. Okay, God. And there was greater growth and more change. An increasing an increasingly visible, practical righteousness. Not one for me to be prideful about because I didn't cause it. God did. God did. I didn't enable that. God did. God did. I'm not perfect. You know that. If you know me, you know that's true. Well, let's continue on here. There's, there's, honestly, there's not too far to go here. It's, it's a short psalm. Just more examples of evidence of a practical righteousness that is evidence 
uh, of true salvation. Uh, so we've seen here there's a, number one, there's an inward heart that's filled with truth. Number two, there's an outward behavior, uh, a righteous behavior toward others, neighbors. Number three tonight, um, one who will uh, come into the Lord's presence for eternity uh, has the evidence of offense at sin in their lives. If you're never offended by sin, that ought to be a concern. Uh, number three, one who is offended by sin, that's God's answer. Uh, if you're not offended by sin, that's a problem. If you see people sinning, you think that's funny, uh, or you're inclined to take up uh, in the sin of sinners, that's a problem. Uh, sin offends God. It grieves the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is a personal being. He's as much God as God the Father and God the Son. He's grieved by sin. He indwells us, and he's grieved by uh, the sin that we choose to commit in rebellion against a holy God. The first part of verse 4 says, In whose eyes a vile person is contemned. Uh, is contemned. We don't celebrate the sin of others because we understand God is offended by sin. Evidence of salvation. Uh, we... Uh, we are offended by sin because God is offended by sin. It's, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's a righteous indignation. It's not a prideful thing. Oh, you did wrong to me, so I'm offended. Well, I understand that we'll be offended by others who do wrong, but that's more of a prideful thing. No, we're offended by sin because God is holy. He's offended by sin, and he's taught that to us. He's indwelling us, changing our hearts, changing our thinking, uh, renewing our philosophies and, and our thought life. Uh, and uh, no longer are, are we looking for the pleasures of sin, which are only for a season. No longer are we rejoicing with sinners and their sin, but we're offended by it because it's offensive. It's offensive. How holy is God? He's perfectly holy. He's offended by the smallest sin. Don't forget that. God is perfectly holy. He's offended by the smallest sin. Don't let yourself think tonight that a little sin will not grieve the Spirit of God. It does. It does. He's a holy God. He's absolutely, perfectly holy. We ought to be offended by sin. That ought not to lead us into righteously attacking the sinner. Uh, it, it should lead us into a loving, wise, uh, prayerful uh, correction of a fellow church member, not an attack, not a prideful attack, but a loving, uh, look, seeking a loving opportunity to correct because God's offended by sin and we're offended by sin and it has no place in our church. Sin has no place in our church. Number four, uh, in contrast to uh, his offense at sin, he will honor those who fear God. Uh, someone who has been genuinely saved and, and who will spend, therefore, eternity with the Lord in his presence, they're offended at sin uh, and the sinner, but they also have a desire to honor those who fear the Lord. Next part of verse 4 says this, but he honoreth, he honoreth them that fear the Lord. It's not that we hold them up and you know, celebrate them more than we celebrate the Lord, but uh, we're happy. We, we look upon a righteous person and we're encouraged by them and we appreciate their example and we hold them up as an example for others to follow. There's nothing wrong with that. We take care not to be man worshipers or encourage others to do the same, but uh, certainly 
uh, it's not a bad thing to examine the life of a believer and to be encouraged by their ex righteous example uh, and to encourage others to follow that example. Don't we do that so much in, in our preaching? We look at the lives of imperfect men, whether it's David or Peter or Paul or whomever, and we, we recognize their, their faults, uh, their flaws, their sin, and we warn about their faults because we have the same sin nature, but we hold up their example uh, of righteousness and obedience as an example for us, and we pray God to help us follow that example. Uh, for example, we, we look at uh, the response of Peter and John in, in Acts 4 and 5 to being arrested for preaching Christ. What did they, they do? They didn't just throw in the towel or get discouraged. They continued. They persevered with uh, prayerful, uh, prayerful uh, pers perseverance, trusting God for all they needed to do that. Well, praise God for that. Number five, a uh, person who will... Uh, can look forward to eternity with the Lord in his tabernacle, dwelling in his holy hill. Uh, they're righteous, and uh, number five, an example of that, an outward manifestation of that, practical righteousness would be keeping uh, his word, keeping his word even when there might be some consequence for doing that. Next part of verse four says, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. That's not, that's not describing profanity, and a refusal to put off profanity. The context does not permit that one bit, not, not for one moment. No, it has the idea of, of one who says that they will do something and they keep their word even if there might be some practical consequence to them for doing that. That is an example of an outward manifestation of a heart that's been changed by the Lord. This is the kind of thing that would be an evidence of salvation that should encourage us. You have a heart to keep your word. God gave you that, and you should be encouraged by that. Uh, it's an evidence of salvation. Praise God for that. Uh, one more thing here, number six, a righteous person uh, uh, does not take financial advantage of a brother. He won't do that. Uh, that's not his heart. Verse five says, he... he that putteth not out his money to usury. Uh, usury is, is interest that would be charged for making a loan uh, that was prohibited under the law. Um, and, you know, it was, it was part of God's law. But uh, today we would look at that and say, well, understand what, what God was saying there. Uh, to take uh, unjust advantage of a brother or sister who is in need uh, certainly is not evidence of a changed heart. <laughs> uh, it would be evidence of a lack of love, uh, a lack of the uh, power of God in my life. Uh, for a New Testament believer, we have the Spirit of God who brings forth fruit of the Spirit, which includes love. Uh, taking advantage of someone who's down and out financially would be the opposite of exercising love toward that person. And so this makes sense to me. Uh, someone who does not take financial advantage of a brother, uh, that, that chain, that's evidence of righteousness from the Lord in, in placed in that person's life. And, you know, be, be encouraged by that. Uh, number seven, uh, the Lord's answer is this, this kind of person, this righteous person, um, will, not, uh, will not take a bribe to testify falsely against the innocent. 
Uh, again, it's just another example. Next part of verse 5 says, Nor taketh reward uh, against the innocent. He will not take a bribe uh, to tell a lie about someone uh, who is innocent. A lie is a lie is a lie. It's sin. We're reminded of that again this morning in Acts chapter 5. And, you know, this is a short psalm with just a, a short list of examples of the kind of righteousness that God uh, makes uh, possible, <laughs> brings forth in our lives when we're truly saved. And this kind of heart, the, 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 these are just examples of the kind of heart that God gives to a believer. And we praise him for that uh, this evening. Uh, and, and we will do that. We'll, we'll stop, we'll close tonight, and we'll, we'll thank the Lord for that. I, before we do that, there's one final phrase in the psalm, and it's wonderful. Um, the psalmist, um, he asked a question. Really, the question boils down to who's saved. <laughs> and the Lord answers, one who has uh, evidence of practical righteousness in his life. Uh, evidence of God having worked in his life. And then the Lord adds something else that is wonderful. And it's the last phrase of the last verse. And let's not skip over it. Psalm closes with the simple and wonderful statement, which is, uh, I, I believe it's a blessing that is promised uh, to the obedient, uh, to those who choose to walk in obedience to the Lord uh, having been enabled to do that by the Lord when they were saved. Uh, Brother Ray, uh, we're saved. We praise God for that. God has given us a new heart and the grace to obey him. He's given us words, his words that show us what obedience is, and he gives us grace to obey him. And when we choose to take up that grace prayerfully and apply it to living obediently, well, there's a greater evidence of salvation in our lives. That'll encourage others. But God also intends to bless that. And isn't that really the theme of the Beatitudes? Uh, God intends to bless uh, the obedience of his people. He will. He's promised to. We see that idea right here as well. The final phrase of verse 5 is this. He that doeth these things shall what? What does it say? shall never be moved. Well, praise God, that sounds like a good thing. But what does it mean? What does that phrase mean? Uh, what does it mean to never be moved? One man said the language here is that of one who has confidence in God in time of great calamities and who feels that he is safe under the divine favor and protection. Uh, he's not one who just falls apart when difficulties uh, enter into the scene. Uh, and they do, right? They, they do constantly. That's part of what it means to live this side of heaven. Difficulties, trials coming at us from all different directions, all, all different times. Manifold temptations, Bible language. Um, we don't fall apart uh, or we don't need to fall apart when those things come. Uh, another man says the idea is that David knew with God's help he would not be shaken how firm a foundation, writes this man, is found in the Lord. He continues, when on Christ, the solid rock we stand, we will never be shaken or even shaken up. David knew that, he understood it, and he proclaimed it for the ages. 
listen, we stand on solid ground, amen? Uh, the world is shaken by all kinds of calamities, uh, but we stand on solid ground as believers. We have an unshakable foundation uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we do not need to be shaken up uh, when difficulties come, when, when trials come. We are the ones who know from God's word that he's allowing those things to grow us, to keep us close to him, to grow our faith, to grow our reliance upon him uh, so that uh, we can grow and so that others will see uh, and be encouraged by our response to difficulties and all the other reasons we know uh, that God has uh, for trials. Uh, he enables us to not be moved, to not be shaken. This is a blessing. This is a blessing from God uh, that is conditional according to verse 5. There the Lord says, He that doeth these things, he that chooses to live righteously according to God's words, not our own definition of righteousness, but according to God's word, that definition of righteousness he that doeth these things shall never be moved. That's a blessing. Now understand that these things are evidence of salvation. And you might say, well, I understand that someone who's saved shall never be moved. I believe that's true. We'll, we'll not be moved. We'll not lose our salvation. But I believe it's also implied tonight that uh, those who would obey the Lord, live, live righteously, uh, will be blessed. Uh, we'll be blessed with a stability. Uh, in our lives that is a blessing from God. Let me share three references with you, and we're done. That's it. We're done. Psalm 16 and verse 8. The Bible says, the psalmist says, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Praise God. There's a stability available to us in a shaken world. There's a stability available to us as believers when we look to the Lord. Psalm 55 and verse 22, get that reference down, please. Psalm 55 and verse 22 says, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. That verse could be part of Psalm 15. It could be. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. There's a command. Uh, here's a conditional blessing. He shall sustain thee. Cast your burdens upon him. He will sustain you, and he will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Well, praise God. You cast your burdens upon the Lord. You don't have to be shaken up. You've cast it upon him. What reason would there be? What value would there be in allowing yourself to be all shaken up by the trial? It makes no sense. Finally, and we stop here, Psalm 112 and verse 5. Write the reference, please. Just get the reference down, please. Psalm 112 and verse 5, The good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. That's verses 5 and 6. And you know what? Those two verses could be part of Psalm 15 also. God's word is always consistent with God's words. <laughs> Praise God for that. Uh, when, there, when it seems like there's inconsistencies in Scripture, it's, it's on us to... Take a step back, pray, take a deep breath, pray, and come back at it with God's guidance and, and resolve the inconsistency. But I, I, you know, it's certainly easier to see many consistencies in Scripture. Uh, these themes are woven all throughout Scripture. Uh, there'll be evidence of genuine salvation. 
Praise God for that. There'll be benefits of genuine salvation from the Lord working in our lives. Uh, and when we take up his word and with his help walk according to his word, he intends to bless us. That's what Jesus preached, uh, <laughs> and that's what the psalmist uh, has revealed to us uh, from the Lord. I praise God tonight that there are true evidences of salvation in the life of someone who's been truly saved. And uh, tonight, if, if you're concerned, hey, there's, there's just not much evidence in my life. My, my heart is, is just, you know, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not there, and there's not much righteousness in my life. Well, maybe because you're, you seem to draw back close to the Lord and, and do some business with him. Uh, if that's the case, I encourage that. But if, if you can't remember a time that you truly repented of sin, you turned uh, from sin or at least had the intention to do that, turn to Christ in faith and place your faith upon him for salvation, if you can't remember when you did that, you need to do that. <laughs> you need to do that. Uh, be saved. Simply confess your sin, turn from it, place your faith in Christ, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. What, what a joyful thing. What a joyful thing. And the Lord will... The Lord will pour righteousness into your life and, and give you a heart for that. He does that. You don't, have to, you don't have to do that. God initiates that process, and I praise him for that. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your words. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you so much, Lord, that we can understand it. Thank you for the fact we have the full canon of Scripture. We can understand um, any passage through the lens of all of Scripture, and Lord, see how it all fits together. And I thank you for that tonight. I know David didn't have the, the benefit of the full can of Scripture, but he certainly had the benefit of the Spirit of God working uh, in his life and, and giving these words. And we thank you so much, Lord, for preserving them for us. Lord, I thank you tonight that um, we could be greatly encouraged at the change that you have wrought in our lives. Understand, Father, none of us has <laughs> been practically perfected. That's a process that continues all the way home to you. But, uh, Lord, I, I thank you for the conviction that is proof of our salvation. Uh, I thank you for the growing righteousness practically in our lives that, that is proof of our salvation. Uh, Lord, the heart to continue growing, the, 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 the keen awareness that um, we're, we're not living as righteous a life as you desire, that's a proof of salvation. And, Lord, I thank you for that tonight, and thank you for the heart that you've given us to... Um, please you with our obedience to you.